Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. My guest today is Jatinder Mann. He's visiting senior research fellow at King's College London, and as of July, he is assistant professor of history at the Hong Kong Baptist University. He's here to talk about his new book, The Search for a New National Identity, The Rise of Multiculturalism in Canada and Australia, 1890s to 1970s, published in 2016 by Peter Lang Publishing. Jatinder, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jason, for having me. Well, it's great to have you. So, Jatinder, I, w- I want to start by asking, you're the first non-Australian to, to be on the show. How did you get interested in Australian studies? Um, that's actually uh, an interesting question. Um, so I did a bachelor's in history at uh, University College London in London, UK, and um, they had a uh, course on Australian history at, youth, um, sorry, at KCL, so King's College London, and you could do intercollegiate courses um, when I was there. And I'm one of those people that just loves to get there, you know, deep into something new. And I didn't really know an awful lot about Australia. So I'm like, you know, this will be, you know, something to kind of, you know, change that. Um, and I did this undergraduate Australian history course. And, yeah, it just sparked my interest in a big way. Um, and, yeah, that kind of led to me doing a master's in Australian studies and then ultimately my Ph.D. at the University of Sydney in Australia. That's very, it's very interesting. So, so the book uh, was written... I think uh, while you were in different parts of the world yourself, is that right? And how, how did kind of the topic, you know, thinking about it, ethnicity and identity and, and migration I- impact that? Um, yeah, no, as you said, I, I wrote the book in various places. Um, I mean, it's based on my doctoral thesis, which was primarily written um, in Sydney in Australia, but I also wrote it um, back home in London in the UK. Um, and of course, the research, because it's a comparative book um, on Australia and Canada, was also kind of undertaken in Canada as well. So, yeah, like you said, you know, the, the topic, the subject of multiculturalism and national identity, um, migrant policy and uh, immigration policy is something that you know, is very much transnational. So, yeah, kind of being based in you know, several countries did kind of um, yeah, give me a bit of a unique perspective, I suppose. Um, I mean, I suppose obviously my focus was on Australia and Canada because they were the two countries under study. 
Um, but yeah, you know, it was it was interesting as a as a point of difference, I suppose, to be in the UK at times because you know there is no official policy of multiculturalism there um, compared to Canada and Australia. So yeah, that was quite an interesting point of difference, I suppose, compared to the other two countries. Why, in your view, is comparative analysis important, and why compare specifically uh, Australia with Canada? Well, I mean, I'm a big uh, believer in uh, you know the benefits, the scholarly benefits of uh, comparative research. Um, and I mean, a point I often make is a lot of things, you know, would not come to light if you didn't compare one country with another. I think literally, you know, through that process, certain things do come to the surface, which wouldn't uh, necessarily um, arise if you just focused on one country or the other. Um, and in terms of uh, why Australia and Canada, in terms of my specific subject of the book, which is multiculturalism and national identity, immigration policy, migrant policy, they have very similar uh, political systems, similar uh, history. Um, you know, they were both British settler societies. But I suppose the main kind of reason in terms of uh, the book, I suppose, was the fact that they both had, uh, well, English-speaking Canada and uh, Australia very much had this British-centered um, national identity for a very large part of their history. Um, so I suppose, yeah, that was kind of the main point of comparison between the two. And, of course, the fact that they both introduced official policies of multiculturalism as well. So the book really deals with the themes of nationalism and national identity, you know, kind of giving way to uh, the, the rise of multiculturalism. So, so what do we mean when we talk about national identity, and what do we mean by multiculturalism? Again, a very great question. Um, I suppose in terms of national identity, I mean, the way I kind of frame it, I suppose, is, you know, a sense of how you conceive yourself as a people. Um, so in tr historically speaking, um, I, what I look at in the book in terms of nationalism and national identity is this kind of shift from a very British-centered identity um, in Australia and English-speaking Canada to a more of a, a new nationalism and then the adoption of a kind of philosophy of multiculturalism. Um, what do I mean by multiculturalism? Um, again, another great question. I mean, I suppose one thing I would say is I would make a clear distinction between multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism. So what I mean by this is, um, to give an example, the UK is very much a multi-ethnic society. I wouldn't say it's a multicultural society. And what I mean by that is you might have a diverse um, population in terms of ethnicity, but that doesn't necessarily make you multiculturalism. Make you, sorry, make you, make you multicultural um, in terms of you know, the way that that multi-ethnicity is reflected in terms of having an official policy of multiculturalism, but even beyond that, in terms of how that's reflected in your media, in terms of um, institutions, parliamentary representation. Um, and as I'm saying this, I openly acknowledge the fact that uh, both Canada and Australia still have some way to go you know, in terms of their um, the, the diversity of the population being reflected in these ways. But I do think they are certainly you know, are much further ahead compared to countries like the UK and other mainland European countries, and even the US, for example, as well. Um, so, yeah, that's probably how I would kind of define uh, multiculturalism. Can you tell us very briefly about some of the archival work that you did? So, yeah, I mean, my, I'm, a, I'm a historian by training, uh, even though I do history and politics, and um, the book is very much based on archival research. So I carried out extensive research in both Canberra in Australia and um, in, in Ottawa in Canada. Um, so I think at the end of it, I think it was probably really about four months in each place. So 
Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the archives. Um, they were certainly my second home and sometimes even felt like my first. Um, but yeah, I mean, through that, I was able to look at a vast you know, array of sources from government documents to personal papers, um, newspaper articles, parliamentary debates, ethnic and government journals. Um, yeah, so, you know, that was something I'm quite proud of. And that's something I've continued to do subsequently um, in my um, subsequent research as well is just trying to tap as many, you know, resources as possible, you know, diverse sources as possible, because I think through that process, you really get an all encompassing narrative. Um, and I think certainly um, in terms of getting a glimpse or a grasp of the kind of policy from above, but also the kind of um, force from like the grassroots level as well. I think through those range of sources, you can really get a, you know, an all encompassing kind of narrative of, you know, both from above and below. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. It seemed like you, you, you were saying that while a lot of research has, you know, recently gone into looking at the story from below upwards, you know, we shouldn't forget that policymakers are important. Was that one of your points? For sure, for sure. And I think that's where my kind of, you know, politics side comes to fall. Um, you know, I mean, I do tend to focus on policy of one sort or another. So my, my current research project is on citizenship policy. Um, but the way I see it is, you know, policy doesn't just come from the clouds. Um, you know, it's influenced by, you know, social movements and grassroots um, activism as well. But, you know, I think it is significant and important to look at policy because it affects, you know, every, you know, everyday life. Um, you know, we have politicians that introduce policies on a regular basis, which, you know, which, you know, materially affect our lives. Um, and I don't think, yeah, it's just, you know, um, you know, that they should be seen as separate. I think actually it's a very much a, a kind of um, two way process um, between, you know, kind of pressure and, you know, lobbying and influence from below, but also, you know, ideas coming from above and those kind of intermingling and producing, you know, um, in the case of Australia and Canada, certainly in terms of my book, you know, a, a policy of multiculturalism. Tell us, you know, sort of briefly, what were generally kind of the, the main waves of immigration to, to Australia? And is it the case that, you know, immigrants or the, the children of immigrants, you know, their political um, power, you know, is part of the reason why we see these changes in multicultural policy? So in the case of Australia, I mean, in terms of large kind of numbers, you really didn't have kind of mass non-British migration until after the Second World War. So preceding that, the vast majority of migration to Australia was British. Um, and when I say British, I mean, pre-1922, that would have included Irish people as well. So you have a very much a large proportion of the, um, of, you know, migration to Australia that was Irish. But, you know, pre-1922, it was considered British because, you know, um, Ireland was a part of the UK. Um in terms of um, uh, in terms of impact, in terms of second generation, I certainly agree, and I think this is the kind of a, a major point of difference between Australia and Canada. So Canada ha experienced mass non-British migration much earlier in the late 19th century compared to um, Australia. I mean, I should point out you did have numbers of Italians and German migrants arrive in Australia, but I, you know, I do emphasize the fact that they weren't large. Uh, number certainly comparable to Canada. Um, so, yeah, that's the point of difference I would make there. And, yeah, in terms of um, lobbying and influence in terms of an official policy of multiculturalism, in Canada, I think it was visible earlier. So in the 60s, you had Ukrainian Canadians especially who were at the forefront for pushing for a policy of multiculturalism. And they, they weren't alone, but they are probably you know, the most notable group. 
Um, the interesting thing is, I mean, in Canada, about that point, because they've been there since the late 19th century, we're talking third, even fourth generation. Um, so they were very well entrenched. Um, they had political representation in Parliament. Um, you know, they had, you know, uh, organizations which had considerable lobbying power and, you know, were taken seriously. The interesting thing in Australia is because of the mass non-British migration taking place much later after the Second World War, the kind of, there was like a bit of a, um, a disparity in terms of development here. So it was much more earlier in Australia. So Greek Australians and Italian Australians, two of the most prominent um, groups in terms of numbers after the Second World War, was still kind of in the infancy in some ways in terms of, you know, being able to have political representation and having that kind of um, lobbying power. So in a way, I would say, you know, um, in terms of an adoption of, of a policy of multiculturalism, grassroots activism was more significant in the Canadian case than in the Australian case. Mm -hmm. you, you talk in the book a, a little bit about the distinction um, between assimilation and integration. And, and you've talked a little bit about, you know, uh, England, uh, as you see it, is a little bit different maybe than, than Canada. Uh, what, what, what is the difference between those two ideas? So I suppose assimilation, generally speaking, um, was kind of a policy which expected migrants, um, so non-British migrants, um, to incorporate themselves into their host culture completely. Um, so this meant an abandonment of your kind of um, ancestral culture that you'd, le you'd left, um, not speaking the language that you'd also kind of um, brought with you, you need to learn English or English and French in the Canadian case, or English or French in the Canadian case, I should say. Um, so yeah, that was you know it was pretty much you know you literally no kind of encouragement of maintaining your um, heritage or culture in any way. It was just no no you need to completely leave that behind. You need to embrace the Anglo-centric in Canada or Anglo-Celtic culture in Australia and become you know you know, um, Australian or, or Canadian, uh, which for the large part of, you know, that policy, if not entirely, was, you know, very much based on this British-centred identity. Um, integration, on the other hand, you know, was a policy which I think actually firstly recognised that assimilation wasn't entirely successful. Um, and one of the reasons was, you know, migrants, quite understandably, when they arrived in Canada or Australia, they didn't want to completely abandon their um, home cultures. They didn't want to completely stop using their language, especially, you know, if it was going to take them time to learn the new language. I mean, they obviously still needed to communicate and they weren't confident perhaps in English as, as quickly, um, you know, as the authorities perhaps would have liked. Um, so I think there was an understanding that, you know, this took time um, and also a kind of recognition that perhaps the second generation would be much more successful than the first generation um, for the very fact that they had been born in their new country, they would have gone to school, um, they would have had that educational experience, language would have come a lot, a lot more easier to them. Um, so I suppose, yeah, that was that kind of um, acknowledgement that it took time and, yeah, perhaps the second generation was where perhaps it was really going to be more successful. Um, but I would also say, you know, integration meant different things at different times as well. So it was very much a process. It wasn't like it was a static kind of policy or concept. Um, so it's an initial stage. I think the emphasis would have probably have been a more kind of on the assimilation side of the spectrum, whereas towards the end in both countries, I think, you know, there was much more of an encouragement perhaps even to kind of maintain certain elements um, of the culture that you brought with you, especially in terms of language. Last question before I let you go. What changes in the 1970s when your book ends? And if there was a sequel to your book, uh, what, what would it say? Interesting. Um, I suppose, I mean, the 70s is when, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I stop, although my conclusion does kind of take it to the current day. 
uh, in terms of the two policies in the two countries. But I mean, that's when official policies of multiculturalism were introduced in uh, Canada initially in 1971 and in Australia in 1978. Um, I suppose, I mean, the point I would make is after those policies were introduced, um, you know, things developed and evolved. Um, and the point, you know, I would certainly make is the initial kind of um, thrust, certainly in Canada, uh, in terms of the multicultural policy was cultural preservation. Because, you know, there were groups such as the Ukrainian Canadians who were very much pushing for it. It wasn't really about social equity or even economic equity. That came later with more um, visible minorities as they referred to in Canada. So people from South Asia or the African, um, from the Caribbean um, or even Asia more broadly, East Asia. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose, yeah, that became more of a, you know, uh, with them when those numbers, numbers increased, you know, multiculturalism kind of evolved to kind of focus more on um, economic equity, you know, discrimination um, and, yeah, social equity even subsequently. Australia was different. Australia very much, um, its multicultural policy, even though it had the same name per se, was very different. Um, it was very much more of a bread and butter approach, very much a practical policy. So initially, the policy of multiculturalism introduced in Australia was about um, how do we improve services for migrants? That was very much its remit. And you know, it wasn't something that applied to all Australians. Um, it was just for migrants because you know, Anglo-Celtic Australians were fine. Um, whereas in Canada, in theory at least, um, the multicultural policy applied to all Canadians. Um, so that was much more all-encompassing. And there were, you know, there were specific reasons for that, which I explore in my book. In terms of, you know, if there was a sequel, um, I suppose, well, I mean, the sequel, uh, in a way, to that book is going to be my, uh, my, own, my next monograph, which will be looking at citizenship in um, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, actually, um, between the 1950s and 1970s. So that was something I looked at in, my, uh, in this book, uh, but not in as much depth, and certainly not in terms of indigeneity, which there's also specific reasons for. Um, so, yeah, that, I suppose, you know, will, will be the sequel. Um, so, yeah, that's probably, you know, it's kind of, you know, a bit of a branch out, I suppose, more from, from this book and the research that this book uh, is based on. Great. We'll have to invite you back. That's Jatinder Mann. He's the author of The Search for a New National Identity, The Rise of Multiculturalism in Canada and Australia, 1890s to 1970s published in 2016 by Peter Lang Publishing. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.